Welcome to CPO Open Mic, the podcast series that brings you experts in procurement. Feline CPO Mike Schiappa sits down with leaders all over the industry to chat about their areas of expertise, passions, and a lot more. Tune in to every episode each month by following Mike on LinkedIn. Hello, everyone. Mike Schiappa here, Chief Procurement Officer at Beeline. On today's episode, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Avis Yates Rivers, CEO of Technology Concepts Group International. TCGI is an asset management and procurement solutions provider, as well as a value-added reseller of enterprise technology solutions. In 2017, TCGI was deemed the third fastest growing woman-owned business by the Women Presidents Organization in New York-based advocacy and education group for women entrepreneurs. In 2020, TCGI was named Supplier of the Year, Class 3 by the Eastern Minority Supplier Development Council. In 2019, TCGI acquired BigVar, LLC, a cutting-edge technology solutions provider and has forged strategic alliances with key OEMs and distribution partners to afford their customers the highest quality IT products. TCGI offers a full catalog of IT hardware and software. Avis serves as a director on the board of a select group of uh, nonprofit organizations. She also serves on the board of the National Center for Women in Information Technology and the Women's Business Enterprise Council. Avis is a highly sought after business leader, a nationally recognized thought leader and social entrepreneur an effective in-demand international speaker. Avis, I am super thrilled to have you on the podcast, so welcome. Mike, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for that kind introduction. Yeah, you got it. Before we get started, it's just been a, a pleasure getting to know you for the last several months. We met several months ago, and it's been great getting to know you and a little bit about your business and looking forward to the discussion. Take me here, Mike. You're a friend in my head these days. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started with a little bit of the basics. Tell me a little bit about kind of your business and maybe a little bit of the journey that, that you've been on. It's been quite a ride. So maybe some of the highlights there would be great. It has indeed been quite a ride. It started with uh, my leaving Exxon Office Systems Company, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of the petroleum giant which was involved in real cutting edge early technology. And I sold some of those things that are complete dinosaurs today in Midtown and, and Wall Street areas of New York City. And so after five years, I realized, yeah, we really are an oil and gas company. Let's, let's spin this off. And so I, that, it was then, that was my first really critical career decision. I had only worked for Exxon, did several internships during college, was recruited upon graduation, and I just always thought I'd be at Exxon. Folks that I knew there were 30, 40-year lifers there, so I thought mm -hmm. I'd always be there. But once I got into sales and started being out amongst the people, you know, and being responsible for my earnings, my budget, my schedule, I just felt I could not go back into a job that did not offer me the same types of control. I guess I'm a control freak, Mike. That's a secret. <laughs> but it, it was that pivotal point that I decided that I was going to try and make it as an entrepreneur. Knowing that, 
as an African-American female sales professional and successful sales executive at that time, I was very marketable and I could always get a job. So for the first couple of years, 10 years, maybe I said, this doesn't work. I can always get a job. Mm -hmm. After a while, I stopped saying that because I didn't want a job anymore. I had finally found something that was totally fulfilling because every role I had at Exxon, I always felt I could be doing more. Don't y'all want me to do more? There's more that I can give. But no, back then there was structured job descriptions and you stayed there in that box. And I started my first company supporting Exxon customers who had invested in that technology, at, which had very limited market presence. And so there weren't a lot of people who knew how to run it. And the new company that bought it just wanted to rip and replace with their stuff. And that's not how large corporations operate, right? You can't turn the Titanic that fast. So I had a good three years of supporting companies like AT&T and Optimal LaRoche and Exxon and New York Times because they were users of that equipment. And I was able to employ a lot of the folks who were coming out of um, the Exxon Office Systems Company as well. So that was the beginning of my journey. Went through the federal government 8A program, did very well there in, in the technology space, continued to ride the trends and the advancements in technology. And then Bank of America called me in 2008 to ask if I wanted to acquire a division that they were spinning off. I'm like, right, really? <laughs> Let me think about that. But they said, it's a good way to get into equipment leasing. We were not selling equipment then. We were a services firm. And after counsel and raising funds, I was able to acquire my first company. It was a spinoff from Bank of America. And we entered into the equipment leasing business right in time for the greatest economic recession of all time. <laughs> Remember, 2008, nine. that was the time. I'm like, oh, thank you so much. You know, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> so I just continued that journey, started building partnerships, started identifying other ways we could be of service because we service the enterprise space. Now we have a lot more middle market companies in there as well. Think utilities, hospitals, universities, state and city government agencies like that. But for the most part, after we left the federal, we have been an enterprise serving entity. And fast forward to 2018, I had an opportunity to acquire a big bar, a, a value-added reseller to get us more in, in line with the leasing and the other IT services that we have been providing. So now today, Tech TCGI has two divisions. We have our technology solutions division, which does everything a value-added reseller offers. We call it next-gen aggregation strategy, and it's a way to streamline a lot of the technology procurement needs of an organization into a single channel. And we manage the distributors and suppliers and products and services on behalf of our customers. So we manage IT procurement for our customers. And then the other division is procurement solutions. And in this group, we very strongly rest on our data and analytic skills and capabilities. Looking back into an organization like Beeline's historical procurement data files to find trends, to spot gaps and opportunities to improve upon that and also to manage your tailspin better. Because as we know, with the, the recent supply chain disruptions, there was too much dependency on large single entities. 
And when those large single supply chain entities got disrupted, then products continue to be hard to get on a regular basis. And so we provide, again, next-gen strategy based on AI and data analytics to go in and really understand what's been happening and how you've been by what, from whom, and at what price point, and then offer you some recommendations on how to optimize that spend moving forward. And then we manage a lot of that for our customers as well. So that's TCGI. And, and our third entity is our foundation. And we can talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. But at we, this point in my career, it's more about being in service and ensuring that the communities in which we live and play and the next generation of technologists who look like me are secured and being created every single day. That's a, that's amazing. There's so much to unpack there. But I, one of the things that fascinates me, Avis, is just entrepreneurship in general. And obviously you're, you've done a remarkable job over the past several years. And it looks like you've, you've taken on some major challenges. Like you talked about that 2008 situation with the equipment leasing, and I'm sure you've had other big roadblocks and challenges along the way. What are, as an entrepreneur, as a very successful entrepreneur, building your own business, what are some things that would be interesting to my audience in terms of some key learnings and leadership and the ways to adapt and, and make change throughout that journey? Great question, uh, Mike. Uh, we have survived some amazing um, incidents, if you will. Think back and over the last 30 plus years, we've had 9-11. We've had some of the largest corporate bankruptcies of all time that were customers of ours. And so each one of those major incidents, I had a decision to make, just like COVID-19 two years ago. Every time my friends laugh, because every time one of these major things hit, I, I hunker down and I say, that's it. I'm done. I'm going to sharpen my golf game. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And they laugh because they know in a couple of weeks, I'm off and running again. But each one of those opportunities gave me the chance to really dig deep and decide who I was going to be on the other side, how I was going to lead my team through it, decisions to make to help everybody not only survive, because it's survival at first, but then it becomes, where do we go from here? How do we continue to sell in the face of such rip-roaring disruption and failure in my head? There were failures, even though I had nothing to do with any of these things. It, to me, it was still, wow, what am I going to do next? I've never had a partner. So I've always gone this alone. And one of my key learnings is if I had to do it over again, I would be a part of a, a leadership team. Now I have great leaders on my team and they, they have great people working on their team, but the buck stops squarely here. There is nobody else to go to. And so that would be one thing I would do differently, but I'm a woman of faith. And so I truly believe in the idea that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So there are obviously things that I needed to learn to sharpen who I am and who I could become. I love Michelle Obama's title of her book, Becoming, because I, that's how I feel. I'm still becoming who I am as a business leader. Lots of lessons to learn and lots have been learned along the way. Team dynamics is very key right? How you show up in front of your team, because 
They're scared. We're all scared. I was on the phone on 9-11 renegotiating a three-year contract with Merrill Lynch when the person on the phone said, I have to hang up. We're being evacuated. Now, the planes had already hit. I, too, was on my way to Los Angeles from Newark Airport on United later that day, just like the plane that went down in Shanksville. Wow. I normally take the first flights of the day. But that day, because I had renegotiation, I was on an afternoon flight. Mm. And there before the grace of God go I. So I have been, my faith has been tested along the way. But I feel like I have been able to overcome because of that grounding. You know, that this is not about me. This is about the contribution that I am supposed to make. My purpose here and the things that I'm supposed to do, the people I'm supposed to hire and serve as a role model for. So yeah, I, I roll, I ball up into a fetal position for a while, depending on the situation. It could be days or a week. And then I just get up, dust myself off. I'm like, okay, let's really work through this. What are we going to do now? Yeah. Yeah. That's remarkable. I'm really glad I asked that question because that's just, it's really remarkable. And finding your purpose, I think, is one of the key things that you mentioned there. And it, it takes time for some folks, including myself, right? It's a tough thing to, to find. And uh, once you do, it's fulfilling and totally rewarding. And boy, that's a, that's a heck of a story there. Multiple stories that you had there. So getting back to the business side a little bit, because I'm interested in a little bit between the technology solutions piece and the procurement solutions piece, and we'll definitely get to the foundation as well. When you're talking to business leaders and CPOs and leaders of procurement organizations on the technology solutions side, what's that value proposition that your team brings to the table? What's coming out of those services uh, that you're providing? Yeah, what we provide is the ability for a company, a customer to, to view us as a strategic advisor. We're not here to sell you something. We're not transactional. We want to be there, help you see around corners, know what's coming, make recommendations, use your data as a constant way of providing insight into what you are actually doing. Sometimes in a large corporation from where you came even, like, yeah. There's so much activity. Who has time to really look down holistically, sift through, categorize, work those, that data and come up with really crystallized views. And so mm -hmm. that's our key differentiator. We use all of our abilities. And in a technology situation, it's not just recommending a vendor solution, which is what you get from the vendor. But because we are uh, third party, neutral, agnostic, whatever description you want to get to it, we can see what is the best combination of solutions for the cloud, for the infrastructure and network, for the data center transformation, for endpoint computing. Folks are asking us all the time. In fact, just yesterday, I think my IT lead was on a call with a customer to determine what should their end user strategy be going forward? And they threw out a couple of three of the top OEM names. And I had to like pat my uh, IT director down. I said, I know which one you like, but let's look at all <laughs> of them to give them the best decision for them. There may be a budget constraint here. Get down off of that top of the line brand and let's look <laughs> at all of them. 
and see what can provide the best functionality at the best price. So we're a great value, not just lowest price. We're, we're best value when it comes to those decisions. Uh, it's very important to some of those companies that don't have the time to focus on that, which is, is uh, it's great. What about on the procurement solution side? So you did mention it's more of like an outsource type of model and you do look at tailspin too. Tailspin has been coming up quite a bit in the procurement world and there's various technologies out there that help with that. Tell me a little bit about that tailspin and the procurement solution side of the house. Sure. I, I love tailspin, by the way. That's what gets me excited more so than anything else because there is so much good that can come out of it. I know your audience knows this. CPOs are my best friend. I talk to them every day. So they know that they spend so much time and so much of their budget on those few critical suppliers, fill in the blanks. We all know who those large software and, and, and hardware and enterprise uh, solution companies are. That's only a small fragment of your supply chain. Where's everybody else? They're in the tail. All your diverse suppliers are in the tail. Your, your boutique software publishers and anything that's not, I was working with one very large company where they considered everyone in the IT category, everyone that is not one of their top 12 software publishers, everything else was in the tail. Okay, they were spending 20 million with another company. If it wasn't one of those top, it was tail. So every company defines it a little differently. And some don't have a definition for their tail at all. So what we do is, uh, this is how we begin an engagement, is with a real deep dive into the data. We like to look at two, three years of historical data. And we assess every single transaction and supplier. And we have AI-enabled technology that allows us to do this so that we can provide you with a proprietary ABCD quadrant where every one of your suppliers will fit. Everyone's familiar with the magic quadrant. Those four quadrants, they mean something. And, and there's some that we want to keep, two quadrants that are the good quadrants and two that we'd like to move either into the good quadrants or eliminate altogether. Because also another big thing is, how do I rationalize this supply chain? Every time you cut a PO or an invoice or a check or EFT, it's costing the enterprise money. Mm -hmm. And so the more suppliers you have to do that for, even onboarding that, third-party risk management assessment, all of those things are a drain on a corporation's budget. And so we manage that whole process on behalf of our customers. It may not be the entire tale, because we're looking across all spin categories. It could be a certain segment of the tail. We help identify where your tail begins based on your data. And then we segment it into different portions and have strategies to bring out the best value in each of those portions. At the same time, Mike, we're able to just receive a request for a product or service. We have the technology that can compete that request because that's the other big thing. A lot of those smaller dollar products and services are just awarded. They're not competed. Who has time for that? You have to have an army. And so our ability to quickly comp compete and get a response in 
24, 48 hours, whatever we put on that particular request and be able to engage more suppliers as a result and drive more diverse supplier utilization, savings tracking, supplier utilization tracking, all of that comes with our services. And so imagine yourself as a CPO of that work is supplemental to your core team now that can now go back to more strategic, higher value tasks for the enterprise while all of that administration and, and, and noise is managed by your strategic partner. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sold. Can you send me a contract this afternoon? <laughs> <laughs> we don't have that conversation, but yeah, we are. <laughs> I think it's fascinating because the tailspin has traditionally, it's been talked about a little bit, but you talked about a couple of things in terms of defining what that tailspin is. That's huge. What is the tailspin? What are your strategic sourcing people, your high, highly talented folks? What are they looking at? And what are they not looking at? And then that tailspin, that's just, it's operating in its, in its own animal. And most of the time you have lines of business that are doing their own thing and they're putting on new suppliers. And the tailspin is where you have thousands and thousands of suppliers. And then with the technology that you have to, to actually do competition on the tailspin and compete that and find the right supply base. That sounds like a, sounds like a no brainer to me. The interesting thing is what I'm finding now is when you say looking at the data right out of the gate, when you have that first engagement, it's remarkable to me that some companies don't even have the data to start with in some. I could tell you stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, MG, and then some that do have data, we wish they didn't have the data. We <laughs> wish that they would just tell us verbally because the data is so bad. Yeah, we've seen the whole spectrum of data yeah. files. Yeah. Yeah. And you're still seeing it today, 2020. Oh, yeah. You're still seeing companies that have dirty data, right? <laughs> or not Absolutely. Absolutely. And when it comes to M&A activity, which is really when a, an enterprise needs us to get in there, because you've got expectations. You have promised as a result of combining two companies together. And typically, we know that without a really deep dive into the data and understanding where the redundancies are, what the price point variances are for similar products from the same or different um, suppliers and being able to rein that in and renegotiate with suppliers for a larger piece of business and higher discount levels. That's how we're able, all of that is how we're able to drive down costs and risk. Cause now you don't have all these suppliers in your supply chain, right? Because 80% of your supply chain is in that tail. That's a lot of suppliers. And unfortunately, that's where all the diverse suppliers live as well. Yeah, that's true. And that, yeah, that's a good, actually a good segue into switching gears here a little bit and um, getting into your third pillar of your business and, and, and you, what really drives you on, on the foundation side of the house. Yeah. And I know there's a lot to talk about there, but you talked about, we had a conversation a few weeks back, you launched the uh, the foundation and it helps break down the barriers for black girls and women in, in computing. I know that's just one element of it. There's some other things that are going on there, but I want to give you some time to talk about that a little bit, because some of the stats that you told me were just out of this world. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'm a data girl, so I, I am privy to 
the industry's utilization of women of all intersectionalities and men of color, right? Because in the mid to late 80s, we had a high of about 37% women participation in U.S. computing jobs. That began to plummet. Even think back, if you saw the, the movie Hidden Figures, we had a whole data processing crew of Black women mm. helping to get John Glenn and others to the moon and into space plummeted, just wiped out. Now they're now black women comprise just 3% of the total U.S. computing workforce. Latina women, 2%. Asian women, 7%. And with a very small number there, all of them together, what it shows is that we're not getting all of these various and diverse voices and ideas and approaches to problem solving in the invention of technology, in the solving of social ills. We're not at the table. We're not at the design table. And so I joined the board of NCWIT, the National Center for Women in IT that you mentioned, back after the year after it was launched by the National Science Foundation to understand why women's participation had plummeted. And then fix it. <laughs> like, you know, federal government, yeah, yeah, fix this problem. And almost 20 years later, we're still fixing it. And it's going to take a lot longer because there was no data. There was no known reason why this had happened. The industry allowed it to happen and didn't take notice. NCWIT had been through social science research and all kinds of those types of activities understanding the complexity of the issue and putting in place solutions to resolve those issues. So I serve on its board and the whole time I've served on the board, the number of women of color participating in U.S. computing jobs has not changed. With all of the great work that is being done, there's still an issue. You cannot lump all women in the same bucket and fix the systems for all women with one broad brushstroke. Because there are more differences among women than there are between men and women. There just is. Mm -hmm. And so what we've had to do is unpack the, the different intersectionalities. And we look at not just race, but age and, and sexual preference and class. And there's so many intersectionalities that make up the body of women. And there are challenges associated with each of those intersectionalities. Uh, and with all of this work that's being done, I'm struck by the fact that the number of Black women in participation had not moved mm. at all. And so I felt compelled to do something about it. I'm an entrepreneur. I see a problem. I want to help to think of it. And so we launched a foundation with that mission of breaking down barriers, because there are barriers, there's cost, there's mentorship, there's role modeling, there's image, there's a lot of barriers to Black women moving into this space. There's even interest, a lack of interest in a lot of cases. So just wanted to really support NCWIT also, because I'm, it's very near and dear to me. I'm on the executive committee and chair the development committee there. So I put in a lot of my 
time, talent, and treasure into making sure that this is successful. But there's still, I need to do more so that little girls all over the world who look like me know that there is a place for them and that they're needed and that they're smart enough to invent the next big thing. And so we've got to start young. So we've got programming in the foundation that targets middle schoolers, because if you don't get them by then, (laughs) you're not going to get them. Because if you ask any girl, what do they want to do when they grow up? They say they want to help people. We've got to build a bridge between them wanting to help people and then recognizing that you do that with technology, computing, engineering. That's the way to build solutions. Everything's made with code. Everything. Every company is a tech company, despite what they're producing. And so there's a lot there. And then we want to shepherd them through middle school into high school, into college and undergrad, graduate school. And so we created two scholarships. And this June 20th, we're proud to be able to bestow two $10,000 scholarships to either a high school grad entering college to study these T&E disciplines of STEM and or an existing or current college student in either undergrad or graduate school to help to break down that barrier of cost for them. I'm a first-generation college graduate myself, so it's not so far removed. You know, I'm one of six children born to two working-class parents growing up in the city of New York. Mm. There wasn't a lot there. and I I started at community college because it was either that or nothing at all. There was no scholarships and grants and all of that. And I know what those challenges are because that was me. And I want to do my part to help solve that. And we named the two scholarships after two of my fallen heroes in TCGI. Both we both I lost to cancer, one lung and one ovarian over the last couple of years. And so the scholarships are in their name, honoring their legacy because Everyone on my team is as passionate about this as I am. Mm. I think I turned them into those kinds of folks. They may not have been before they got here. Once you're on board, you know how important this is to me and how important this is, I believe, to the world. We're hosting our first inaugural fundraiser on June 20th, which is when we're going to bestow those scholarships. And John Fitzpatrick, one of my fallen heroes, was an avid golfer. And the scholarship is named for him, but also the Memorial Golf Classic is named for him and will be held in Bucks County, where he, PA, where he lived and played lots of golf. And so mm. we're on our maiden voyage of raising funds for the scholarships and we still need them out. Yeah, <laughs> that's remarkable. I'm still amazed by the metrics that you presented, Avis. And I'm not surprised by the folks on your team following in your footsteps because your leadership is infectious and your passion is infectious. So what what can some of our what can some of the listeners take from this? What can they do to help? Because I certainly want to to help as well. We'll have a conversation after this, but I think it's moving the dial there and that three percent is just it's just unbelievable. So yeah, the problem, Mike, is that the system, the systems are broken. It's not that folks don't want these individuals in their tech workforce. It's just difficult to attract them and to retain and advance them. So we're not just looking 
to check boxes or to pump up numbers for numbers sake. The culture has to be welcoming. I remind people all the time that you look at any large corporation, it was built by white men for white men because that's who was in the workforce back then when it was created. So it's just history. There's no negative around that. But now that you're trying to attract a diverse workforce, you've got to look at your culture and make some changes. You can't put out job ads that say, looking for that art charge and go get them. Women are not going to apply. There's, there's really some red flags in the way companies position and brand themselves. Our social scientist at NCWIT works with our corporate members. It's a member organization of corporations, colleges and universities, tech startups, ERGs, and, and nonprofits. So with our organization, we touch every girl in the United States because the K-12 Alliance has the Girl Scouts, Girl Think, Valley Ride, um, Science, the Girls Who Code, Black Girls Code. All of these are members of NCWIT. Think of it as the big tent. And we equip, unite, and uh, convene all of these members to help them to change their culture. So the Workforce Alliance, which is where all the corporations are, they are working on internal culture change. And there's a tech inclusion journey software that NCWIT scientists have developed to help along that journey. And then the uh, universities are working on how they teach it and how they, you know, recruit women into their programs. And so there's a lot of information to be shared, but I would encourage your audience to take a look at ncwit.org and see if you're a member. And if not, uh, that's one of the easiest things you can do is become a member and get involved in the conversation and then be equipped to change your culture. Similarly, with our foundation, take a look at tcgifoundation.org and see all of the ways that we're trying to impact women of color throughout their life and career and see how you can support both of these efforts. But I can have that conversation with anyone about both of those tracks Mm -hmm. at at any time. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. I know we, we've we covered a lot today, Avis, and I, again, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last several months. It was a great discussion. We covered some really important topics and you had some really remarkable stories and insights. So I appreciate your time and and friendship, and I'm pretty sure that this is going to continue on for, for quite some time. Oh, yes, Mike. No, you can't lose me now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again, Avis. If you'd like to get in touch with Avis, please connect with her on LinkedIn. She did mention the technologyconcepts.com as well for her website. And I want to just say thanks again. This concludes our episode for today. So thank you all for listening. Be safe out there and have a great day. You've been listening to CPO Open Mic with Beeline CPO Mike Shiata. Tune in to each episode every month by following Mike on LinkedIn.